Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Okay, we are pleased to welcome uh, my colleague, Dr. Richard Reddick. Rich, we're going to talk about the election, but you do so many different things on campus. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm the Swiss Army knife of the campus. Uh, <laughs> first of all, Peniel, thank you for inviting me. And uh, I just want to give a shout out. I listened to the first episode we did with Dr. Moore, and it was terrific. It was great driving. You know, if you live in Austin, you got to drive. So podcasts are a great way to sort of inform yourself. So that was a great conversation. So I'm excited to be here. Um, so primarily my appointment is in uh, the School of Education. I am associate professor and director of the program in higher education leadership. I also have an appointment in African, African diaspora studies in the Warfield Center for African, African American studies. I also serve as the assistant director of the Plan 2 Honors Program. And uh, those are the jobs I get paid for. So, <laughs> uh, you know, like I said, Swiss Army Knife, I think, you know, my experience, of course, is that I'm a Texas ex. I went to school here as an undergrad. And so I'm just by nature just attached to a lot of parts of campus. Uh, and it's funny, it's like a curse. You know, you'll come back to your alma mater and you'll end up being involved in a bunch of things that, oh, I care about that because I was involved in that. Or I think that's an important thing. And of course, being from Austin, I have a lot of uh, responsibilities that tie into the community I work on. I'm the board president of a charter school called Magnolia Montessori for All, which is which was the first public Montessori school in the city of Austin. And I also serve on the uh, advisory board for the uh, Idea Public Schools, which is a charter network out of South Texas. So yeah, and also I serve on the mayor's task force for institutional racism and structural inequity. Yes, I'm on that task I'm not, force. Yes, as, we, as we, well, we've yes. been on that together. You know, you have another role. You're in the uh, policy area. I'm in the education area. But also a dad to Carl and Catherine, which is probably the most pressing of all those things I do. But No, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm a proud father as well. Mm-hmm. Let, let's, let's begin. Um, last night was the 2018 midterms, an election that um, was really perceived in many quarters as the most important of the last half century in the context of this age of Trump. Sure. First thing I'm going to ask you, what are your feelings about the election and what does this mean for Democrats in 2020? And we can start at home with Beto O'Rourke. Beto really became a rock star during this 2017, 2018 midterm cycle. A lot of people have talked about Beto for president. Um, He ends up losing to Cruz, gets about 48 percent of the vote. Um, Pretty tight for a Texas race. It's a surprisingly robust uh, race. What do you think? Yeah, um, and I think many of us were looking at the returns early on and saw him leading for quite a part of the night. And so you started having this sense, like, is it going to happen? And I relate to my uh, coming of age politically. The first election I voted in, I was 18 years old, was 1990 for Ann Richards. And I was reflecting on that election, and obviously Ann Richards won. But that campaign is a campaign worth studying because you know, talk about being an underdog and talk about having a candidate, Clayton Williams, who made so many critical errors that made it possible for her to eke out a victory. And um, fair play to Ted Cruz. He was a very disciplined candidate. He, He knew the pathway for victory for him was to sort of attach himself to the president and to sort of stay on message about Texas and jobs and so on and so forth. And, um, Despite, a, I think, a charismatic and amazingly engaging campaign for young people, especially, 
for Beto, he came up short. But I think look at Tarrant County. He won Tarrant County. That hasn't happened in decades. So I was telling this to my students just in my class before. And, you know, I didn't assume that they had voted for any particular candidate. But I said, one important thing to take away from these uh, midterm elections is that sometimes a loss is a victory. Mm -hmm. And that is the fact that Beto was in 213,000 votes of unseating a incumbent in a state that has voted Republican for the last 20 odd years is significant. And the way he did it is significant. Sort of the rejection of the centrist, I'm almost like a Republican, but I'm really not. He was unabashedly a progressive, ran that way, and, and brought out people who he hadn't seen vote before. So I, I think there's a lot of reasons to be, if you're a Democrat, to be optimistic. I think that means that there's something happening. I think, you know, I'll leave this to the Jim Hensons of the world, but I do think this is the purpling of Texas. It's happening. Absolutely. But there's something that's happening now that we wouldn't have predicted. And even uh, some of the races, like for attorney general, those were close as well. Mm -hmm. So the down ballot effect, we're sending two uh, Latinx women to Congress for the first time in Texas's history. There has to be some kind of connection between the excitement that Beto brought out for uh, progressism and Democrats and also independents uh, that had a ripple effect on those other races as well. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you. And I want to talk about this optimism because I think last night Democrats had three national rising stars yeah. in Stacey Abrams, mm -hmm. who's the first black woman nominated um, major party candidate for sure. governor of Georgia, mm -hmm. uh, Andrew Gillum, mm -hmm. who was poised to be Florida's first black um, governor, mm -hmm. and Beto O'Rourke. And they all ran unabashedly progressive campaigns. Right. Uh, Stacey Abrams, that is still in doubt. That's right. She hasn't um, conceded. She's not conceded. Yeah. And, and there may be a runoff in December there. Mm -hmm. Um, but Andrew Gillum lost by about 90,000 votes. It looks like it's point, it's, it's point zero seven, point six, yeah. Point six. Yeah, uh, and he just close. missed the cutoff for the recount. And they're still counting. So and we... they're still counting. So that may, but, but I want us to talk about, you know, what's very interesting about those three national candidates is their efforts to really move the Democratic Party. And I would say not just to the left, but really back to its origins in the New Deal and the Great Society. That's right. Right. Yeah. But this time, when you think about the New Deal and the Great Society, those efforts, um, one, the New Deal wasn't inclusive because of uh, how the New Deal was basically Jim Crowed in terms of public yeah. policy and housing and other aspects of the New Deal. Mm -hmm. The Great Society uh, tried, and there's the big effort, and we're here. I'm at the LBJ school. That's right. But the Great Society also was contradicted by money and financial expenditures spent in the war in Vietnam. Yeah. Right? So when we think about Beto O'Rourke, Andrew Gillum, um, Stacey Abrams, what I thought of was really um, both Martin Luther King Jr. and and Jesse Jackson's presidential runs. Mm -hmm. So even though they they all um, and we don't know if Stacey Abrams has lost, but Beto lost and and Andrew Gillum conceded. I thought about Gillum got four million votes, um, really running as this black progressive right. in a deep Southern red state. Right. right. And mm -hmm. last night, Florida also voted to restore the franchise That's to 1.4 million mm -hmm. um, former felons. 40% of them are black, black men. Yeah. Black men. So, I mean, this is extremely exciting, especially, Rich, I want you to talk about the excitement of the Abrams and the Gillum and the Beto O'Rourke campaign and compare and contrast that within the aftermath of 2016. Democrats, including Bernie Sanders, the socialist, right. were making a claim that 
the party needed to reach out to angry white voters. Yeah, yeah. And that was the that key. <laughs> and and even though these three candidates, they haven't necessarily come out on top, they, they ran extraordinary, robust campaigns that should really provide a framework and a blueprint for 2020. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a fascinating analysis. And I, I, I agree with you. I spent some time in Georgia this this past year and during the campaign, a good friend of mine was campaigning for Stacey Abrams. And granted, I was in Atlanta, but you know, you don't usually see that kind of energy around a campaign. I, I, I walked off the plane and literally people were wearing shirts. I saw signs. Same thing with Beto. When people say, people would call me like, what's going on in Texas with Beto? Like it's the first we talk about, like not how you're doing, you know, how's your life, Rich? Like how's Beto doing, right? Like I know him. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's something, a repudiation of this uh, mythology about, and I think what what Trump has shown us for the last two years is that there's a base there that's not going away. You're not going to peel them away. And I, I think about this concept I've been toying with, the empathy gap. And I think when you think about sort of the the sort of cumulative effect of having residential segregation, uh, school segregation, what Robert Putnam talks about as far as people being socially disconnected. And Robert Putnam is a Harvard sociologist. That's right, yeah. Bowling and, Alone. Bowling Alone, that's right, a pivotal book. And, and so all the things together means that there are there are folks who are just sort of set in where they're going to be. And I do think it was a fool's errand to kind of say, let's bring them back. Because I think you can bring some people back, but that can't be the plank in the main focus of a campaign. I think it's about reaching out to people who have felt left behind. And literally, not people who are just in the grievance uh, sort of industrial complex, the folks who just, you know, I'm angry, sort of the, the Hannity viewer who's just fuming about things when in fact that person is actually benefiting significantly from societal and, and racial privilege. But more of this conversation that there are people truly who are concerned about things like student debt. Mm -hmm. There are people who are truly concerned about things like the uh, prison industrial complex, mm -hmm. right? How about reaching out to those folks and getting them excited? Because one thing that uh, Leonard said last week, which I thought was powerful, was the idea people typically, you can motivate people more, much more uh, adroitly by inspiring rather than making them angry. For some demographics, that works. And I will say, you know, for the white, uh, angry male voter, that has been effective. But I think for folks of color and for women, it's a different conversation. Um, folks want to be inspired. That's why Obama was so successful, because his message was hopeful. Um, and, and his message was hopeful. But one of the things I think that Abrams and Beto O'Rourke and Andrew Gillum show without saying it, it's really implicit, mm -hmm. is that there was a disconnect, even with the Affordable Care Act, even with the American Recovery Act, mm -hmm. there was a disconnect between Obama's 2008 rhetoric of hope and change and what ultimately... Yeah, the yeah. concrete results, the policy implications of that. Mm -hmm. um, he gets two years of policy in 2009, 2010. The final two years in 2015 and yeah. 16, um, um, there's more executive orders. Yeah. But in between that, from 2011 to 2014, is just the politics of, of, of congressional obstruction sure. that he's really unable to get any headway out of. And meanwhile, Democrats suffer unbelievable catastrophic losses right. in the 2010 and 2014 midterm elections. Mm -hmm. 2010, Democrats lose the House of Representatives. In 2014, the Democrats lose the Senate. Yeah. All told, Obama, during his administration, Democrats lost 13 Senate seats. That's right. And they lost dozens of seats in the House of Representatives. So one of the things that these 
uh, candidates have done is really connect their optimistic rhetoric to concrete policy, policy agendas, yeah. including Medicare for all, That's free right. college tuition, mm -hmm. the end of mass incarceration as we know it, right. all these transformative, um, the end of voter suppression, mm -hmm. uh, w women having parental leave, women and men having parental leave, childcare, really transforming the welfare system mm -hmm. in a positive way that's not punitive. So rolling back the Clinton crime bill, sure. the Welfare Reform Act. So I think they've really touched in a very nuanced way on connecting and bridging that gap. Well, I think it's interesting about Peniel is that, you know, when you, one of the advantages I think I bring to sort of political analysis is that I didn't grow up in the United States. I spent 10 years living in the UK uh, and so, Understanding sort of that multiple party system, and not that I had a nuanced view as a kid, but really understanding that what brought the Democrats into political power in the executive branch was a centrism in the 90s, exemplified by Clinton, right? Centrist uh, policies, Republican-like policies that worked for the moment. But the reality, as you said, is the Democratic Party is not composed of people like that primarily. And people want to see policy that impacts and changes their lives. Mm -hmm. So there was a strategy shift that had to take place. Like, mm -hmm. okay, so now you're in a power. And I think something that's also powerful is this idea that, uh, and I think, again, once again, referring to the previous podcast with Dr. Moore, I really think it's important to talk about the fact that well, who, who got prepared and trained and molded to take leadership at some point in time. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, everybody's always like, who's going to run in 2020? And I've been telling people, you don't know. That person isn't even on the scene yet. Because uh, I think this, we're seeing a change in the way that politics is being uh, offered up, especially in the more progressive area. And I, when I say progressive, I mean people who truly are left of center versus centrists. And I think it's a valuable lesson to be learned is like there is actually a cry in, in the uh, Vox Populi right now. People want to see candidates that are talking about progressive policies. And, and your point with the New Deal is really well taken because, you know, I'm talking to my, my students, my freshman students I'm teaching in my UGS 302 class. And, you know, we talk about college costs and their whole obsession is about how much is this life-changing experience costing me? That's all I think about. And I'm from a generation where we didn't have that concern. Mm -hmm. And we're in the same classroom. It's not like we're, I'm like 10 generations older than them. It's like literally this happened in the last 30 years. And um, they have to be sort of uh, motivated to sort of say, I want government to work for me. Mm -hmm. I, I actually want to benefit. And it's not this idea of having things, you know, Romney's, you know, makers and takers comment. But no, as a citizen of this country, there are certain rights that I believe I, sh I should have. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of those rights is is education and, and all the things that it offers. And it's a very easy argument to make. It, it's actually counterproductive to argue against things like uh, low cost or free tuition. It makes no sense to say those things don't make any sense because ultimately college graduates end up being taxpayers and entrepreneurs, all these different things to contribute to the society. You know, we, we've got a debt crisis that is now uh, outpaced consumer debt. Mm -hmm. um, We've got people who are literally making choices about, do I start a family? Do I buy a house? Do I buy consumer durables? I can't because and, I can't afford to. And this has to be at the center of the Democratic Party's Absolutely. rhetoric. Uh, one thing I want to talk about with you is is some preliminary, pre preliminary lessons that we can take. I wrote an article on CNN in terms of 
about what happened last night. And one of the things I discussed was voting rights and how voting rights matter and how voting rights really have to be part of the rhetoric and the campaign of any Democrat at the local, state, or national level, because there's so much voter suppression that is being organized against the majority of Americans, but specifically young people, people of color, um, people at times, rural people of color, people who are not in the mainstream and not elites and privileged. So what can we think about when we think about voter suppression, especially the fact that both Rick DeSantis, who seems like he's going to be the next governor, who's going to be the next governor of Florida, Kemp, who was the secretary of state in in Georgia, did so much voting shenanigans. And then also right here in Texas, we suffer from voter suppression, especially in the aftermath of the 2013 Supreme Court Shelby v. Holder, a repeal of the Voting Rights Act enforcement clause. So what can we say about voting and what should the Democratic Party be advocating in terms of voting, voting rights, and also ending voting suppression? Yeah, I, I think that's a such a key point to talk about because through the repeal of the Voting Rights Act, through gerrymandering, all the different things that have been done, and people knew coming into the game, like Democrats have to overperform. So I think the number I heard is 7 million more votes for Democrats across the nation. Plus 7.5, yes. Yeah, that's so you know, it, it's, it's amazing to think that a representative democracy can be sort of toyed with that way. And I think, for instance, I was talking to my students about the fact that voter ID laws are not something that I grew up with. Like I voted in 1990, I walked up to the poll. I didn't have to show anything, I just mm-hmm. went up there. And, and, and given this country's very ugly and very recent history of voter suppression, it didn't go away. The Voting Rights Acts basically uh, secured the issue of preclearance so we could definitely check and make sure that if things were changing, there was some oversight to that whole process. And as soon as that went away, in Shelby versus Holder, as you said, the shenanigans started up again. And, you know, I made this point about Brian Kemp. I said, he's going to go down to history and not in a good way because these were efforts that were so transparent and so um, obviously the the idea that people who had missing periods in their name would be uh, taken off the voting rolls. The, the idea that the uh, Secretary of State who's managing the election is somehow not recused from actually uh, being in the election, right? If you're running for that office, how are you able to count? Like, I think in the very most essential analogies, you know, you don't count the money, you know, if you're the person who's supposed to be the the, the person. It's an obvious conflict money. of interest. Right. And, yes. and, and, and that's problematic. So I think, again, I think about the fact that we've had a number of uh, Democratic governors brought into office, which will oversee things like redistricting. So I think that's a really important point. And all the sort of conversations we have about how the game is rigged. So basically, I think since the late 60s, and this is your area, but I certainly think uh, the realization that demographics is destiny. We're going to see changes happening in this country. Especially after the Voting Rights Act of 1965. How do we uh, sort of preserve an amber you know, white supremacy. We do yeah. it by monkeying around, using that term, uh, with the rules of the game. And that's been the Republican Party's playbook, the GOP right. straight playbook in terms of Southern majority. And right now, in terms of demography is destiny, they're blocking the destiny of black and brown folks. That's right. When we think about this Latinx population that came out in full force, 12%, a record in midterms in that's terms right. of percentage-wise. Yeah. Black people were 12%. I want to I shift from voting rights to... Um, the overt racism that we're seeing. Because if voter suppression is the new Jim Crow and poll tax of our political time in the age of Trump, what's been astonishing to see, or maybe not quite astonishing, is the overt racism coming from Kemp, 
coming from DeSantis, Cruz, yep. coming coming from the president of the United States. So this isn't coded anymore. No. Ian Hanley, this isn't dog whistle politics anymore. Right. So let's talk about the new racism. We thought that that was dead because of the end of formal Jim Crow and and Governor George Wallace in Alabama sure. and white supremacists like Jim Eastland in Mississippi who were right. overt racist. Right. We're, we're being called everything but the N-word. And when you think about the Trump ad with immigrants and caravans and marauders. Yeah, it's the Willie Horton ad like on steroids. And, and it's... And Willie Horton was the 1988 ad that the George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush campaign unleashed. That's right. That compared Willie Horton, a convicted criminal who had been furloughed by Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis and basically almost superimposed their images side by side and ruined Dukakis's chances of being president right. in 88. Yeah, I, I think... And I, I will also say that um, for me, it's interesting to think about this idea. And of course, being a higher education scholar, I think about sort of the advent of political correctness. And so, you know, late 80s, early 1990s, when we started saying, let's recast how we think about language and how we sort of think about um, identities on college campuses. And instead of making that a, a conversation about the changing demographics of the country, people took offense. And of course, because it challenges white supremacy. It challenges the very ideas that you're inherently entitled to these privileges because you have white skin tone or because you're male or you're cisgender or whatever. And, and what's interesting to me is that there has been this sort of uh, retrenchment where people have, you know, Americans, I think as a, as a people are very susceptible to fear. You know, mm -hmm. I think about what got an investment in education in the 1950s was the fear of the Soviets, right? Mm -hmm. We 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 have aspirational um, and and lofty goals, but when things come down to the nitty gritty, it comes down to fear. Can I scare you into getting something done? And I think this perpetual fear of the other, this idea that uh, black and brown people will treat the new minority of white people the way that they were treated, is an interesting concept. That's why you fight so hard for it. Because you're like, if you treat me the way we've treated you. I'm looking forward to that at all. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think you're right. Having this uh, president in particular who unabashedly embraced uh, racism and nationalism. And I, I've been fascinated by people who said, oh, this is the final straw. Like, did he say the N-word or not? I'm like, does it matter? Mm -hmm. I said, when he, his leading card is birtherism and his leading card is Mexicans are rapists. Um, I think you've heard all you need to hear. Mm -hmm. So if he said the word or not is really irrelevant. We know the president operates on a racist agenda. And, and to use Andrew Gillum's uh, you know, famous phrase from this election season, the racists think you're racist. Yeah, That's what really matters. Yeah. And, and so I think there's been this unbridling and this freeing of the tongues of, uh, of white racists uh, and also the normalization of racism. Mm -hmm. So we've operated, you and I have operated, we're the same age cohort in the time where people sort of had to couch these things. Now you can just kind of put it out there. Yeah. And you can use pseudoscience and, and literally uh, skewed facts to sort of claim these things. I see these sort of pre-masticated uh, arguments that people sort of pick up on in, in, in Fox or in Breitbart or in campusreform.org and they've got an argument that's sort of, well, this, this, and the other. I have this whole argument sort of set up and it goes back to this idea that instead of sort of embracing uh, Reince Priebus when he was the RNC chair, the postmortem, like, let's look what happened. Let's make better outreach. It's so interesting to think about that moment where he was on national TV saying, you know what? 
this loss we had shows us that we have not done the work we need to do. After the 2012 election. After 2012, after uh, Romney. And, and, you know, we need to go back to the drawing board. And Trump's like, wait a minute. <laughs> let's go back to what works. Mm-hmm. And let's just double down on it. And it's been effective. And I think the... Um, like I said, you have to think of the combination of the things we talked about, the uh, voter suppression, uh, the racial gerrymandering, the hearkening and calling on white supremacy to sort of defend our nation. This is George Wallace reanimated, right? And what do you think, very quickly, because gonna, we're going to end by talking on an optimistic note, the deep divisions that we're seeing. New York Times said last night that, or this morning, that the nation's more polarized than ever. Because right now, we, we've lost our moral... Um, compass. Yeah. We we don't have a national consensus. And I mean, a national consensus, I'm not even talking about on healthcare. I mean, on citizenship, sure. on justice, on equality, on what that means, yeah. Yeah. on the 14th Amendment, right? Yeah. So wh- wh- what do you think, just briefly, in terms of are these racial divisions deepening? Can we get out of these racial divisions w- with a progressive New Deal style agenda? Or is it that we're going to win by bringing more of our people to the polls? And if we stay in power long enough, we build consensus. So I think about interest convergence. You know, Derek Bell talked about, you know, bringing interests together from seemingly divergent perspectives, right? And I think about the fact that student debt to me is a galvanizing issue for this generation. I think if you're a conservative, if you're a liberal student, if you're you know, apolitical, that's something you care about. And and as I often talk to my students, and this is the area you work in, the 1960s, the draft was a galvanizing effect because if you were male or you cared about male people in your life, that impacted everybody. And so people had to take stands and people who had very different political views came together and said, this is a problem for us. I think the other piece is back to this issue. And again, I, I, we're at the University of Texas, uh, where Walter Cronkite went to school. Uh, and I think about the times that that voice of trust. So Walter Cronkite reporting to you the death of John F. Kennedy or the number of troops that have been lost in Vietnam. There was a voice in this country that, oh my gosh, he said that, then it must be legit. I, I think we're seeing, oddly enough, this is my hypothesis, we're seeing that moral leadership, not in government, not in media, uh, not in communities of faith even, Perhaps it's coming from the corporate sector because you've got Starbucks, you know, making political stands. Uh, You've got Google saying certain things. And oddly enough, these organizations are working from a perspective and saying, look, this is bad for the bottom line. Our customers, the people who work for us, this is harming them. So we'll make a stand. And, you know, maybe I'm less concerned about the purity of the motives, but I'm more concerned about there's uh, an entity with capital, with you know, economic capital, with uh, social capital saying, this is a problem for us. And so I think we're in an interesting place where we're seeing very unusual organizational embraces of, of morals and ethics. And they're not perfect, right? I mean, Google just had to walk out with their uh, women staff members because they're not doing all they could do in that area. But I do think it's interesting to notice after the Pulse nightclub shooting, uh, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter to see some all of a sudden organizations, companies mm-hmm. popping up and saying, this is a problem for us. You know, I've written about the Starbucks uh, approach to what happened in Philadelphia. And, and my thought is, you know. And this is when the black young men were told to leave when they they were waiting for a friend and they were told to leave. And yeah. that sparked a national controversy. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's the whole song and dance about, well, let's just do what it takes to cover this up versus let's actually have 
perhaps symbolic, perhaps ineffectual, but nevertheless, let's do something beyond the apology. And Starbucks eventually closed their stores to do a training, and it was you know Howard Schultz and yeah. the CEO. May 29th, they shut their stores down and actually did trainings. And they they consulted with Sherilyn Eiffel and all these other folks who are, are prominent uh, civil rights activists to sort of talk about how do we move forward on this. I want to close with a discussion um, on an optimistic note about last night proving that the Obama coalition or whatever coalition you want to talk, a multiracial, multicultural, progressive coalition, multigenerational, mm-hmm. is really alive and well. You know, mm-hmm. we saw Ayanna Presley win. We saw Rachel Rollins win, uh, Boston district attorney right. out of Suffolk County. Uh, we saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez win. So wh- what does this mean in terms of all these young people, these African-American voters, these Latinx voters, these Asian voters, these these native voters, people coming out of the woodworks, and at times white allies too. Sure. Majority of white women voted uh, Republican uh, last night in terms of, uh, and so did majority of white men, but there's yeah. pluralities of whites too. Yeah. So what are we to make about this this Obama coalition, this multiracial coalition? Well, I think we have to, first of all, acknowledge and credit the, the work of women, women of color especially, uh, in this election because uh, the percentage of women has got a 22% in Congress. Uh, it's the largest percentage of women we've ever had in Congress. Native women, uh, Latinx women from Texas, the first time ever, Muslim women, uh, black women from Massachusetts for the first time in history, queer women. I mean, it's, it's just an amazing sign of hope for me, I think. And as an educator, I think about the importance of our institutional context the university setting. Mm-hmm. Students who get to come here and be really engaged with each other and immersed and build relationships start realizing there's more in common than there's different, right? And the issue of allyship is really important. So, you know, I, I think one of the critical things we have as educators is our opportunity that we have to foster environments where students feel they can connect with each other and they leave this place. I, I was talking to a group a fraternity man a few years ago, and I told them, I said, it's possible for you to have an experience on this campus where you are never in the numerical minority or the power minority ever. That is a waste of your experience because you want to have the experience of being on the other side of an issue or being in the minority because that will build your empathy reserves. And then I think that's a lens you see the world of forever. And I think what we get to do as, as faculty members is to really generate and prod and, and, and get students to that point where they feel supported in their identities, but also I need to understand your experience more than that because that will give me the empathy reserves so I can go out there and get to know people and understand their experiences. And so even though, for instance, maybe my identity, my intersectional identities aren't being represented in this particular way, this is exciting for me. So, uh, you know, why am I as a man excited about these women? I'm a feminist. So I I see that as a huge uh, advantage and a hugely important thing for society as a whole. Because I think we're better off as a society with more women in political uh, power. So for me, I'm I'm absolutely excited and and exalted about the fact that there is this piece of people coming together and finding intersections of interests, uh, of, of similar goals, and even realizing like we don't agree on everything, but we do agree on this idea that we should be working collaboratively, or we do agree that your vision for the future is a vision I can buy into, at least significantly enough that I would vote for you over an opponent who's using fear and hopelessness as their sort of driving force. That's very well said. Um, My last question is, what do you think this all means for 2020? 
Yeah, I, I was telling my students, you know, you you think we're we're done? <laughs> you get a couple months off, we're back into it for 2020. Uh, what it means, in my perspective, is it's going to be interesting to watch what happens on a state level. So let's see what's happening as far as what are the policies and the laws that are enacted to make sure we don't have a Kemp sort of situation going on again. Will there be legislation coming up looking at those kinds of things? Redistricting. Uh, census is coming up. You know, the census will actually have an impact on all these different things. And I, I, so I think there's so much at stake. So we just said this is the most important election of our lifetimes. 2020 will be even more important, right? So, uh, and of course, what does it mean on the executive level uh, about Trump? So Trump's two-year window, you made the analogy to what Obama had for the first two years, that window is shooting, is, is closing. Mm-hmm. It's going to be this uh, very interesting time where um, you've got a chief executive who's going to be at loggerheads with uh, the House, and there will probably be likely a lot of obstruction or a lot of tension happening there, investigations, you name it. So the question becomes, do people say, well, that's because we elected Democrats and it's a bad thing, or do they realize this is the beauty of what checks and balances mean. This is what the founding fathers wanted to see happen, right? Uh, And so it'll be interesting to see how that's framed. If you saw today's press conference that the president had, uh, it is is something to watch to sort of see him spin last night as some kind of victory and, you know, basically continue to vilify the uh, press because the press had been forced into a role beyond the fourth estate. They had been the check and balance that the Congress has not provided. So hopefully that pressure's off somewhat because now there's actual uh, co-equal branches doing that work for them. Um, so, and back to this question about who's going to run for president, who's going to, I'm just excited by the fact that Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum were not known three years ago. Absolutely. Um, and neither was Beto O'Rourke. Yeah. These so. people, so there are people literally, and one thing that uh, you and Lara talked about is this generational uh, thing. People are like chomping at the bit. Give me the front runner. Is it Joe Biden? Is yeah. is it Bernie Sanders? I'm like, you don't know who it is mm-hmm. because give credit to our generation, the generation coming after us mm-hmm. who are kind of saying, you know, I'm going to step into that role. Absolutely. I'm going to try this. So don't count out the MJ Hagar's and, and the Biddle O'Rourke's. They might not have won their elections, but they are definitely viable uh, for the next uh, cycle. They might run again. They might uh, end up going into some other role where they're advising new people. But I think the most exciting thing is the fact that um, give Nancy Pelosi a lot of credit. Yeah, the, the Democrats found incredibly appropriate candidates for those communities. So yeah. you got a Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania who fits that community really well. And you've got a Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York who fits that. They're different people. Mm-hmm. You don't have a template or a blank slate and say, check these boxes. They're finding people that fit those communities very well. And, you know, I've heard people who said, you know, I don't really want to get behind a Stacey Abrams or an Andrew Gillum, but I respect those people. Mm-hmm. And that's progress, you know. And I think about the fact, and, and I think a, a concluding message is for the young folks is that the incrementalism of electoral politics is such that you can't be unmotivated. You have to find ways to work in multiple ways, yes. right? You can't just sit and say, it's all about the election and I don't care about anything else, or it didn't go my way, so I'm done. You have to sort of think about, well, how can I think about leveraging the other places I work in and the community work I do to, for the same goal? I, I think to see more attention to voter registration and challenging voter suppression, educating voters, educating future voters, mm-hmm. right? I, I'm, I'm kind of struck about sort of the collapse of 
civics education because people literally don't know what they're voting for, what Mm -hmm. people do. For instance, what the attorney general does. A lot of people think, is that a military role? Like Mm -hmm. that's the person who runs the elections. (laughs) That's a pretty important role. So you might want to have some attention to who does that. And Justin Nelson last night came awfully close. Came very close, very close. close. Yeah. All right, my friend, thank you for blessing us with all this knowledge and this wisdom. This has been a great conversation. And I love the optimism. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm on that train. It's optimism fueled with uh, realism. Right. We realize the depth and breadth of the issue, but optimism about the future of American democracy. Well, I appreciate that, Peniel. And you know, you and I have been around for a little bit, lo- a little while. So we've, we've seen some low points. We're literally, you know, having your heart ripped out, you know, 2000, there's, there's moments where you can say, oh my gosh, this is the, the very bottom of the well. But I think what's amazing about this, as you said, I think with a little bit more time, we see the energy, we are able to look at the progress being made. And I think um, we work within structures, outside of structures, in radical positions, in tempered radical positions, we work in different ways. So I think for me, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. And you know, it's okay to be you know, upset and not happy and, you know, mourn a day or two, but then you get up tomorrow and start doing the same work. I mean, our ancestors did work uh, that had to be 10 times as disillusioning as this, yeah. and they made progress. So I think that's what we look to, our history, our, our forebears, our foremothers. Uh, but this has been great, and I'm looking forward to hearing this episode and the future episodes. So um, this is a really cool uh, podcast. I'm looking forward to being a fan and a subscriber. <laughs> and thank you for having us. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.